today on Wine Access Unfiltered. In a stadium with 75,000 people, like you don't see a face. Mm-hmm. You, you see just masses. When you're on a Broadway stage and the first person is literally three feet from you as you're taking your final bow, it's like you're connecting, you know, with this, mm-hmm. with this person. Would you do it again? Absolutely, I would. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast. I'm your host, Amanda McCrossin, and I'm here with the wonderful Vanessa Conlin. Great to be here. Very excited about today's guest. Me too. Tiki Barber. That's like a name that even I recognize in the sports world. Mine too. And there's so much more than sports to talk about with him. He's so well-rounded and just full of interesting uh, other passions as well. Yeah. Famous for being a, a player in the New York Giants, but has been involved in a lot of different entrepreneurial activities for the past uh, decade plus since he's been out of the NFL, including being a broadcaster on CBS Sports Radio. He also has a company called Luzio, which is a a sports events company that I'm excited to learn a little bit more about. He's also, interestingly, a vegetarian slash vegan. He doesn't eat meat. And performed on Broadway in Stiletto Heels. Who knew? He obviously is cooking a little bit lighter fare without the meat, but I wanted to push him outside of his comfort zone where initially were you thinking? Well, we knew he liked um, lighter wine. So, of course, I went kind of classic. Mm-hmm. Um, our backyard here, you know, in Sonoma. So I was thinking, you know, obviously a Pinot Noir, but sort of an iconic producer mm-hmm. is where my wine, my mind went. But when I think of Pinot Noir, I think of some other kind of lower tannin wines. Mm-hmm. And of course, it can depend on where it's grown. But sure. I definitely thought of things like Grenache. I think we could have done like something from Etna, like an Etna Rosso. Mm. Could do something like a Barbera. So uh, I won't reveal what we actually chose. But I those know. are my those are my top selections. I'll be really curious to know if one of the wines that's a little bit more iconic, if he's had before, because I mm-hmm. think this is sort of a benchmark producer that I was excited not only to drink, but also excited to introduce if he hasn't had it. And then, you know, a discovery wine that would be something that he probably hasn't had before. Off the beaten path for for some. So we'll see. We'll see how this goes. I'm a, you know, Philadelphia Eagles fan. So, oh, God help us all. Either way. I know. He might just like, (laughs) he might find out and just be like, I'm out. See you later. (laughs) We'll see. So, with that, I guess let's drink. We are so excited to be here with Tiki Barber today. This is a name that I recognize from growing up outside of Philadelphia. And, uh, you know, I knew knew a little bit. I know. (laughs) You couldn't grow up in Philadelphia without knowing a little (laughs) bit about football. But we're really excited to have you here today. Super excited and tons to talk about and good wines to drink. So, yes. Absolutely. Can't wait excited to, get to be here with you guys. Thank you for having me. This will be fun, even though you're a Philadelphia so. Eagle fan. Well, are you a you fan? Know. Are you a fan? Just let me start. Are you a fan? Eagle fan? <sighs> I am an Eagles fan. I can't betray my home. Okay. You have, but you have a, to respect a, that, right? It's a it's a hate respect relationship, right? It is. So so yeah. that's a good thing. <laughs> but you know what? We bond over wine. Wine is that's a great right. unifier. That's right. If it can't bring us together, then nothing will. Well, and you should know that that uh, my husband is from Cleveland and I have sort of learned by osmosis, but I did not grow up around football. So I'm by no means an expert. Yeah, we, you know, we drink wine. Yes, you drink wine. Don't worry about yeah. football, especially in Cleveland right now, because they have. Exactly. Been I know. There's been there's been a lot of heartbreak in my house. It's going to change soon. I promise it's going to. Yeah. Is this right. their year? I Well, they have the talent. At the end of the day, talent makes for opportunity. Now they have to put it all together. but. It's 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 been a long time coming. I think it yeah. might be getting close for the Cleveland Browns to live up to the expectations. 
All right. I'm telling my husband you said that. <laughs> well, we we won't go you too hard on, on no. wine or football today, but we'll no. just have a lot of fun. Exactly. Um, cool. You have some wine preferences and you're a wine drinker. You primarily eat vegetarian slash vegan, uh, which we'll dive into for sure, and drink mostly lighter wines. So I wanted to select some wines that were going to obviously cater to some of the cuisine that you're enjoying at home. Maybe find something that was like a little bit of a discovery for you. And then also maybe give you something that uh, would feel sort of classic and iconic. So we have two wines today. The first is the classic iconic one. So that's the Costa Brown Pinot Noir from Sonoma. Have you had this? I have not. And I just poured it two seconds ago. Oh, a well-known wine among Pinot appreciators and otherwise. This is actually our CEO's favorite producer of Pinot. So making him super jealous right now. It achieved cult status and is a, a wine that I think was highly allocated. You know, I, I used to buy her restaurants and something that was really difficult to get. And uh, you know, just like really, really beloved by those who love California Pinot Noir. So, And I um, think you tell me what, what you two think, but I always thought of this also as a stylistically, the Costa Brown style as being one that can sort of bridge the gap between Pinot Noir drinkers and sort of Napa Cab because it does yes. have that, a little bit more richness than some producers on the Sonoma Coast. Yeah. Well, that's that's interesting because most of my life I was not a light wine drinker because my diet was significantly different up until about seven years ago when I started running and getting in better shape, at least non-football shape. Okay, I was going to say, I was, I was like, I... <laughs> no, I, I played at about 208 pounds. And then when I started running marathons, at least attempting to run marathons, I dropped probably 25 to 30 pounds. And so my diet obviously changed. But when I was playing, I wanted cabs because I was eating meat and, you know, trying to keep on all of this weight and mass because I needed it in order to protect myself. But as I became a runner, I started to find that meat made me feel off on run days. So mm. I'd have meat and then the next day I'd feel really sluggish. So I stopped eating meat. It actually helped me become a better runner in a sense, at least wow. psychologically, I think so. And as a result, I started want to want to drink uh, lighter wines with meals. And so that's why I started to gravitate towards Pinot Noir. Any favorite producers that are sort of your go-tos? None in particular. My wife does most of our wine selections. Yeah. And in fact, we get most of ours from our uh, Wall Street Journal um, wine. Club. Oh, cool. Is that is that Letty's? Tea? Tea? Does it? Uh, yeah. I think it is, but it's, yeah. it's, it's random. So we, we never know what we're going to get in the, in the, in the box. Um, but we always tend to grab the Pinots first and save the cabs or when we have guests over or we're <laughs> going to have something heavier uh, with like, heavy pasta or something. Yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like you're fairly adventurous, both you and your wife. Oh yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not particular about um, a specific varietal or, or I, you know, there's none that I hate. Malbec started to give me headaches. Um, but I used to love them when I was heavier, when I was a meat eater, I loved them. I tried one the other day for the first time in, I don't know, three years. And I was like, let me just see. And, yeah. And I had two sips and I was like, eh, it's just not, not your thing. thing. It's not my palate anymore. Yeah. Do, you, do you remember, was it from Argentina or was it like? Yeah, I'm not good with the names of wines. You know, yeah. there's, there's a few that I know that I've, I've grown to, to love. And it started because my financial advisor was one of the uh, guys who went into Screaming Eagle um, oh. in the early 2000s. Charles Banks was his name. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. He took me to this event out at the Napa Valley Reserve, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. yes. And Ann Colgan was there and Bartarajo and obviously Screaming Eagle. And they were pouring all these 
like elite wine. <laughs> fancy, fancy. What am I doing here drinking these wines? I remember the story from it that, that will always stand out was I asked Anne, just because somebody told me, you got to ask Anne to get you on her list. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, Anne, can I get on your list? She's like, it's full. <laughs> so she said, get out of oh. here. She said, no. <laughs> Anne Cole gets a no to you. I'm calling she her. She said, no. But then um, <laughs> about a year ago, a year or so ago, they were, they were acquired. Um, yeah, uh, I reconnected with her because I had we had a mutual relate, uh, friendship, and so she said, "If you want to get on our list, you can get on our list." So, all uh, right, so you finally made it on. I, I did. I, now that you're not drinking cabs, exactly. <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, could be better. Uh, those are some pretty iconic names you mentioned. I mean, Araujo, Screaming Eagle, Colgan. Like, but was yeah. that really one of your first real wine experiences, or had you been drinking pretty broadly before then? That was probably my first, like, you better know what you're doing, wine experiences. Good Lord. Prior to, I mean, I, I, I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia, and I went to UVA. And yes, we drank wine at UVA, but, mm-hmm. you know, I was a college student. It was cheap wine right. <laughs> at, at UVA. And so when I, when I finally, you know, got to the NFL and started to develop a real taste for it, it, it only happened because someone, you know, took me down that path. I would have likely not discovered it myself. Um, and, but but Charles took me down that path and um, I started to really enjoy it. It adds a different depth to meals. Um, and yeah. what I've grown to appreciate is that I can drink any kind of wine with any meal if I think of it separately. You know what I mean? So it's this, yeah. this is an accoutrement. It's not necessarily a pairing, right? It's like, this, this goes exactly perfectly well with this well-charred whatever. You know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not into that. It's like, I, I want something that's going to make me feel good when I pick it up and drink it. Well, Amanda might disagree because you spent so many years as a wine director, but I, I think pairing is really fun. But, you know, also it's just what, you know, what do you enjoy? Yeah, it's fun to you because you know what you're doing. So, you know what I mean? It's like cooking, right? I love getting in the kitchen, just like throwing flavors together and trying seeing to see if it works. Yeah, see if it works. So to me, it's like a, it's an expression. It's an art expression for me. It's a creativity outlet. So I love to see, like I have the basics, the principles. And of course, having done it for a few years for other people makes me a little bit mm-hmm. better equipped, but I still surprise myself. I'm like, oh, I did a good job. That was <laughs> way to go. <laughs> I'm not surprised at you. <laughs> I would expect nothing less. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear you that you're kind of an adventurous drinker. I, I we went on a limb with the, uh, with the other oh, wine, yeah. which is a uh, Grenache or Garnacha as they call it in Spain. So this is another, um, another late, lighter, can be lighter grape, not always, but this is mm. a lighter style wine from Spain. Going to have a little funk. So hopefully that's okay with you. <laughs> It has an interesting aroma mm-hmm. and I can't pinpoint it. So, well, Garnacha for me always has this like really like kind of wild strawberry note to it, but also can have mm. a little min- mintiness to it, almost like spearmint. I do. I do taste strawberry. And then, you know, you get a little bit of that kind of barnyardy, yeah. like old worldy yeah. funk, which I like, but can be polarizing. Yeah. But but for me, this is just kind of the right amount of savoriness. So I'm going to ask a rudimentary question. Do it. Mm-hmm. You're my favorite. This smells a little like strawberry and tastes a little bit like strawberry, but it's obviously great. Like, how does that, how does that work? You know what I mean? I'm you, deferring to our master of wine. You know, some things are just intrinsic to certain, you know, grape varieties. Like you get bruised apple in Chenin Blanc. You get, you know, strawberry in Grenache Garnacha. You get black currant in Cabernet. A lot of that is just like actual um, compounds of the grape. But part of that is also how it reacts during fermentation. So mm. some things, you know, happen along the way in terms of processes in the wine. So mostly we're just literally talking sort of the, the magic that is wine and what comes from the earth and, and yeah. from, you know, agriculture. But then, of course, like, what does the 
winemaker do to yeah. it can have an impact. I mean, all kinds of things along the way. How, what temperature was it fermented in? Did it go through, you know, mallow? Are, are those decisions intentional? So that the winemaker makes, you know, the fermentation process. Is it, are those intentional decisions or is it a lot of trial and error? So these days, I mean, wi- wine making has gotten so smart and the technology that's available is incredible. So I'd say, you know, it kind of depends on the producer. You'll see some like super mm-hmm. old school, like let's throw it in a barrel and see what happens with fermentation. <laughs> but I mean, a winemaker can control things down to like the nth degree in terms of like what temperature yeah, I mean, is it fermented they're at. They're literally controlling this stuff on their iPhones. Yeah, from, like, they're like from apps. the bedroom at three in the morning. I mean, right. it's really that dialed in. But to Vanessa's point, like not everyone plays by the rules in that way. And there is a little bit of magic involved in winemaking in that you're taking this substance and you're throwing it in a tank and it comes out something completely different. And so we understand chemically and scientifically what's happening, but we don't always understand why Chenin Blanc always tastes like bruised apples and, you know, why there's a little strawberry always in Garnacha. And, you know, for me, I think uh, that is the magic and the beauty of wine is that there's so many different outcomes. and And like we were saying before, like as much as you can... You can know about wine. Like, there's always something that might surprise you. You never, you never really fully have it nailed down. So, is it better to know more, or is it, is it better to be more naive? I think it depends on the person. I think, I like, gonna... yeah, I think, like, you know, for for Vanessa and I, oh, I won't speak for you, but I think for you and me, I'm, I am innately curious. I mm. love to just continue learning, and it does not bother me to not know something. So for me, like, I love it. But I think yeah. that question that, that you asked, Tiki, is it's something that like I get asked a lot as a wine professional is like, can you still enjoy wine or are mm. you always just like analyzing it? And like, I think it, to Amanda's point, depends on the person, you yeah. know, yeah. In, so, in some cases, I think maybe it's easier for sort of novice drinkers because they're not overthinking it or trying to be correct. But for me, I, I mean, there's always a little element of like, hmm, like what would a consumer think about mm-hmm. this or how would I describe it? But I, I can still genuinely enjoy wine. So here's a parallel for you. Obviously, I played in the NFL for a decade with the New York Giants. And I watch, and so I do some analyst work for games, both college and the NFL. And I find it hard sometimes to actually sit back and enjoy a game, like to see, mm. like just what happens, happens. Instead, mm-hmm. I find myself analyzing, for instance, why did that guard take that hitch step and then do whatever he did? Or you know, God, they're playing the wrong coverage for this personnel that's on the field. And so I find myself criticizing from afar because it's not what I'm expecting. You know what I mean? So it's similar to what you're talking about as a wine professional. You kind of look at it some, sometimes overly critically that you just forget to enjoy sometimes. And I have to yeah. I have to catch myself and say, just sit back, have a drink, have a beer, whatever, chill out, right? Stop analyzing yeah. what you're seeing on the screen. That makes yeah. sense. Do you, I mean, do you still find enjoyment from from watching football and from watching other professional games? Well, you know yeah. what I find enjoyment in? I find enjoyment in greatness. And so um, when I see, which is why I got into sports radio and sports talk radio, because I love to look at and dissect and talk about great things that have happened and things that I haven't seen before. And, and an example is Pat Mahomes, who just won the Super mm. Bowl with the Kansas City Chiefs. So he he has this baseball skill set that you usually don't see in quarterbacks. I mean, they may have it, but you usually don't see it executed on a field. And mm-hmm. so when I watch him play and the things he does, whether it's throwing across his body or, you know, jumping and underhand throwing a ball to somebody, it's a baseball skill, but it's, it translates for him, not for everybody, but for him perfectly into football skills. 
And so I watch it and I'm, I'm in awe, you know? So I think I, I, I watch all sports, whether it's baseball or basketball or, or football in particular, because I want to see great things happen. And you never know when that's going to occur. Right. It could be on the first play of the game. It could be, you know, middle of, you have no idea when something mm-hmm. amazing is going to occur. Yeah. You're involved in quite a bit and have been since your football days. You know, I, I was trying to do a little research on you and you have your hand in like a lot of things right now. What are you most excited about these days? Up until the coronavirus hit, I was excited yes. about starting my international leg of the Abbott World Majors in the marathon. So I've run New York, I've run Chicago, mm. um, and I've run Boston. And my first run outside the U.S. was going to be, at least for the Abbots, I ran Paris, but the first one outside the U.S. for the Abbott World Majors was Tokyo Marathon. Mm. What I've been excited about for the last five years is training for running because I'm not good at it. I mean, I'm, I'm okay at it. My PR is four hours and 18 minutes or so, but hmm. I'm a good enough athlete that I should be running under four hours and I can't do it, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> I've become obsessed with that. But outside of the athletic sphere, I have a couple of companies that I've started. Uh, one is called Thuzio. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. a, a sports event company. So think of the legends of football or baseball or basketball that we'll sit down. And sometimes I do these interviews um, and have just a conversation with them. It's live, it's unfiltered, it's raw sometimes, especially when you have a guy like Lawrence Taylor, um, <laughs> who, who, who's had a couple of whiskeys and he's, he's willing to say anything. <laughs> like it feels really intimate. We've been at it for about seven years in total, but two years independently from my other company, which is called Julius. It's mm-hmm. an influencer marketing company. So those are the two things that are capturing a lot of my uh, my time and mind share. We're, we're also podcasting a little bit now because nice. we're forced into the virtual realm. We do live events. Can't do live events right now. Right. Yeah. I also um, am part of a founding group of a cannabis company. Oh, get out of here. And CBD, because uh, obviously there's so many restrictions around uh, marijuana in, all, in a lot of the states. When you're not in California. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> New Jersey's having, I mean, New Jersey's trying to figure it out. So, I mean, I'm, I keep myself busy. I think I've always viewed myself as an opportunist. If mm-hmm. someone comes to me with something that I know I can have an impact on, I'm willing to try it. You know, I'm not scared of failing. That's why I end up doing so many different things. So speaking of trying new things and not being afraid, how was performing on Broadway to you? And how did that? Amazing. <laughs> yes. I saw the the photos and I watched some YouTube videos. I am impressed. You rocked meals. So the, yeah, right. So the, the backstory is about 1999. I wasn't sure how good of a football player I was going to be. I was two and two years in my off season and um, I wanted to get into broadcasting. And so in order to train for it, I went and met with an acting coach. Uh, Her name was Peggy Lewis. And so I took this acting class and she ended up producing a play called Women of Manhattan. It's a John Patrick Shanley play. Mm -hmm. He's known for Moonstruck. And she asked me to play the role of Duke. And so the whole scene is is about 12 minutes of me sitting on a date with wine, by the way, uh, with this young lady having a conversation. I'm smoking a pipe and... It was it was intense and it was it was nerve wracking because you're sitting on stage and like there's faces like right there <laughs> and, and you don't want to mess up. And I ended up kissing a girl at the end. It was kind of cool. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, but I only did 16 performances. Mm-hmm. The next year I got really good at football and it kind of took over my life in a sense. And that that Broadway dream kind of went away. Now, fast forward to last year, Kinky Boots was in its last season. 
and they knew that they were closing. Uh, and one of their principal actors, Danny Sherman, um, was going on a hiatus because he was doing another show for about seven weeks or so. And so they had asked me originally to be a walk-on, like just walk on, do a show and say, hey, do whatever, learn a little dance and get off. But it didn't work at the time. So they came back to me when Danny was, was taken off and said, would you like to learn his part? And I said, absolutely. I would love to learn his part. And I got to tell you, it was one of the most exhilarating experiences that I've ever had in my life. So first of all, I was immersed in a culture, Broadway culture that mm -hmm. I had no clue about. Like we see it from the audience, but to be behind the scene and know the people and these beautiful men who are dressed up as drag queens and they became like close acquaintances in a really quick time. They accepted me and, uh, and, and helped me learn this role that um, I was essentially playing the, the thesis of the show. I changed my mind. My character was the one who changes his mind about drag queens in kinky boots. And at the end, I get to get up and dance on these thigh-high stiletto heels. <laughs> yes. By, by the way, I practiced in block heels. So you, you guys know the difference between a block heel and a stiletto. Yes. Opening night, they said, here are your boots. And I was like, wait, these aren't what I practiced in. <laughs> I can't tell you how nervous I was, but the feeling of elation is unbelievable. I'll give you an anecdote that my Lola, his name is Callum Francis, who played Lola in the, in, in during my run, said mm -hmm. to me, he said, think of a tidal wave. So a tidal wave, you push out all of this, this emotion, all this love we're pushing out into the crowd. And it's, it's confused in a sense because there's conflict and you know some things that go on throughout the show. But at the end, everybody is standing up and that tidal wave that rushed out now starts to come back at you because everybody's singing and they're dancing and, you know, just be, it's, it, I mean, every night I did it for six and a half weeks, almost seven weeks, every night. Like I felt like I wanted to cry at the end of the, not, not like a sad cry, but like, like happy cry that, you know, in a sense we we're trying to change the world. And it was so, um, such, such an important message at the time. And it still is today. I think that's the biggest thing I, I, I take from Broadway is that you have the power to move emotions in a way yeah. that's just awesome. Yeah. Sports is that way too, but really immediate in Broadway. I was going to say, do you feel the same way about the audience reaction in a Broadway show that you did, you know, with the crowd in a stadium? And Yeah, no, it's, it's, it depends on where you are. Because if you're in Philly, I'm getting F you. <laughs> <laughs> you're getting a lot worse than that, my friend. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That's true. But at home, it's, it's similar. But the difference is that in a stadium with 75,000 people, like you don't see a face. Mm -hmm. you, you see just masses of people and, and you, you feel energy more than see people. When you're on a Broadway stage and the first person is literally three feet from you as you're taking your final bow. It's like you're connecting, you know, with this, mm -hmm. with this person. Would you do it again? Absolutely, I would. But here's the thing. So Callum's boyfriend, his name is Ainsley. He was a lad in the same time Callum was Lola. And so I met him and I was like, oh, Ainsley, I can't wait to go see you in Aladdin. And Callum was like, you're not going to like it. And I'm like, what do you mean? I love Aladdin. And so we ended up going to the show and it was Aladdin. It was just like the movie that I'd watched every day when I was uh, you know, 18 years old. And it felt, it felt great. But at the end, I kind of knew what he meant. When you do a show like Kinky Boots, which is sending mm -hmm. a message, it's obviously entertainment, but there's a serious message that's being portrayed. And right. 
when you go see a lot of Broadway, it's just entertainment. He it's said, feel good. It feels good, but it's like, there's, there's not something deeper. I felt like I was, I mean, I don't want to be like a Galactarian or anything like that, but it's, I felt like I was doing something like profound. Yeah, you're give, I think you're giving, you know, you're, it's a way of giving back. And that's right. Vanessa and I were both in theater before we did wine and yeah. had careers on stage, but there is something about doing a show where there is clearly a message and, and the audience responds to that. And you all leave like with like sort of an emotional cleanse. Like it's, it's exhausting mm-hmm, every mm-hmm, night. Mm-hmm. That's right. I'm, I was worn out, but I felt yeah. so alive. Yeah. Sunday, uh, Saturdays and Sundays were rough though. Cause two, two shows. days, two, two shows two a shows. day. In terms of training, did you have to change anything that you did um, training for football to perform on Broadway? A, a little bit. There's a lot of parallels, interestingly, because I always liken being a running back in the NFL to a dance, right? So I have to know what the center is doing and the guard, especially because if you have pulling, like the guard is pulling around and he's got to go around the, the, the right tackle and, you know, hit it at just the right time. And in order for the play to work, I have to be perfectly in line so that when they make their blocks, that the hole opens, it's only going to be open for a second. I can hit it with velocity and confidence. And so uh, the har- actually the hardest thing for me on Kinky Boots was getting the blocking um, mm. because as you know, as you know, you guys know, as a stage actor, you, you have to move the set. It's not on, you know, mechanical <laughs> shifter. <laughs> not magic. Yeah, exactly. So um, I remember the first time I was, I watched the run through and they had a, a stand in do my part. I was like, I, there's no way I'm going to remember grab this, you know, the stage uh, uh, set and move it. He put it on this mark, let whoever cross and then come behind him. Like the blocking was so overwhelming in my mind. But what I literally did was write it down. So write it down with X's and O's, kind of like I was when I was was a football player. And And it clicked, it clicked in my head. And I only messed up one time in six and a half weeks. I only messed up one time. So much fun with him. So. so when you were when you're in the NFL, uh, you were drinking a lot of cab. Were you drinking when you were like on the road? Did, did you go out to dinner and, and drink some wine there? Yeah. So not on not on the road because we're only away. Believe this or not, because people think athletes travel all the time. Baseball mm-hmm. players do. Mm-hmm. Football players. We are on the road for eight nights a year. Oh, Wow. An entire I didn't know six, that. 17 week season, there are eight nights that we don't sleep in our own bed. Yeah, I guess that math adds up, huh? That works. That makes sense. Eight home <laughs> games, eight away games. That's it. So we, there really isn't time to go indulge. But what would, you know, what, where would we would consume would be after home games. There was a restaurant I used to live. I was one of the few guys that lived in the, in the city when I was playing. I lived on the Upper East Side on 60. Uh, fourth and uh, and first, and and then ultimately up on seventy second and first. And oh, he lives on seventy second and first too. Oh, so you know Promola? Yeah, you know Promola, which is right the down li- the road on Second yeah. Avenue. Is that the is that the little Italian place? A little Italian spot. Yeah, we w- so that was my favorite restaurant when I lived in the city, and so we would go there after games. And I mean, it's sometimes it's like really late, but they would keep it open if we walked in in time. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and make this like. Because I'd bring my linemen and, you know, we just have it <laughs> out, man, just to indulge. It was really just an escape from the, you know, the, the, the day, which is so heightened. And you're always looking for ways to come, come down. Like it's really mm-hmm. hard yeah. to come down. Um, and so wine was a good way to do so. 
yeah, when is wine a relaxer for you still? Is that something that you kind of unwind with? It's what I chill with. I don't always drink every day, but I almost have a drink every day. <laughs> it's usually just one because my show takes a lot of preparation and we mm-hmm. it's we're talking sports and you get animated and you get excited and you, sometimes you're having debates, but then you're just you're like bringing energy to have this this radio TV show that we do every day on CBS uh, Sports Radio and CBS Sports Net- Network because we're simulcast. And then afterwards, you just you there's just this high that's there. Yes, and you just you just want to like just need to chill. I want to relax. There's like a weird line between like riding that out and then like also kind of trying to come down. Do you ever find that like after we record, like mm-hmm. there's this weird sort of adrenaline where like I don't know where I live right now. Well, and like my my <laughs> like my brain isn't quite together. Like I need I need. <laughs> You're right. There's too many synapses firing. I'm, exactly. Wait, I can't wait. What am I? What am I supposed to do? Wait. Yeah. Exactly. Let me chill. Yeah. And that's where wine comes in. Yeah. Perfect. Do you generally like pop open a, a new bottle every night or do, do you drink one glass? Or are you a Corvin guy? It depends. So no, I'm not a Corvin guy yet, even though people keep telling me I need to do so. I just usually pop it and plug it and then stick it back in the fridge. Yeah. Um, and it, and that works when my wife has wine with me because mm-hmm. we'll have, you know, two or three glasses. I usually have two. She has one. And so you'll get through the bottle pretty quickly. But when it's just me, it's like this thing could last forever. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I, I end up probably drinking too much when it's just me. Do you collect a bit of wine? Do you have a wine cellar? I don't, you know, and that's what that's the one thing about our house that we haven't finished yet. And it, it frustrates me. Our basement is subterranean. So it's not an above mm-hmm. the ground basement. It's subterranean. They didn't finish it. We've, <laughs> we've used it for storage and have never gotten around to making a wine room. So instead, we end up storing it in the basement, but in like a cabinet. So it's not really a wine room. And it's one of the reasons why we haven't started really collecting great wines. My brother yeah. has, a, has a great wine cellar in, down in Tampa. Would this be your twin brother? This would be my identical twin brother. He's got a really great collection because he has a place to store it. So I still think I'm I'm young. I can still I can still grow into a, a, a good wine collector. I just got to find the place for it. Of course you can. I found at least for me, I started off with a little wine fridge that held I don't know eighteen bottles. Once you fill the space, it's like a shoe closet, I guess. <laughs> but you want to fill the space and you want things to be in there. And then like it, it also just kind of becomes an extension of your wine drinking. The wine fridge or a wine cellar is. I think so important for people who want to get into wine. I, I, ne- I never really realized it until I had one. Do you feel bad drinking things that you save, that, that you wanted to save? Like you're in your mind, you're like, I want to save this. And then you end up drinking I, it. Do you feel I bad don't. or no? I no, don't Because I always know there's going to be more. <laughs> and you know, the other thing is like, I always feel like I'm getting away with something. Well, and I think what makes me the most sad too is opening something and then realizing I waited too long. Yeah. So I'd rather like drink them and enjoy them. I still like yeah. to to mature, especially yeah. Cabernets for, for several years before. But like, I, I, I want to know that I didn't miss the best drinking window yeah. or my, my preferred drinking window. How do you do that? Like, how do you know? Because I, I often wonder these questions. I look at it. I'm like, God, that's, that's 2013. Is that, what, where, where is that right now? It's only seven years, but you know, so where, how do you do, how do you know? I mean, you can get really wine geeky and look in, you know, memorize vintages. I mean, you can find somebody that you trust that has written up like suggesting a drinking window, like, a you know, a critic or a retailer. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think the most important thing is is actually learning what you personally like. And do you like wines with more sort of primary fruit forwardness to them? Or do you like them when that sort of savory tertiary note starts to come in and then figuring out where on the scale? So for me personally, I like to have a bit of more like tertiary savoriness come into it. You know, I know 
know people who like get their shipments of Screaming Eagle and they pop it the day that they get it because they like wines that's kind of more primary. So, you know, there's no right answer. It's really kind of just trusting and learning what what you personally enjoy. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions is weeding is not always the answer. Weeding doesn't necessarily make a wine better, and sometimes it can actually make it worse. Not all wines are meant to be aged. Yeah, Yeah. Um, and I think it takes experience. And I think your point earlier, like, you know so much about sports and so much about football, you know, just being able to watch a field and watch the plays that are happening. You just internally know that. Maybe even though you didn't see the outcome, you were able to at least extrapolate based on factors that you know natively, instinctively. And I think understanding wine and how how they develop based on past performance mm-hmm. is something that you know we're able to do just because of repetition and practice it's just really an experience well, thing well let me ask both of you Vanessa how, how did you get into like wine how did you how did it become something that you loved and made into a profession so i used to live in new york city you know and i was a singer so i appreciated wine i was curious about it but i really didn't know anything and you know i i was in a broadway show for a while but primarily i i performed with opera companies and there's a lot of downtime in between where you know i'd go have a gig and then i'd come back and i'd be auditioning and what are learning my music for the next gig and i was just like you know what i just this is really interesting to me i'm just going to go like take a class and it wasn't like a super academic class it was just like a fun amateur, you know, evening class for for people like Wine 101. People talk about having an epiphany bottle or something. I guess I'm just like too big a dork. Like I had a <laughs> class that I went to. <laughs> but I, I just remember like the instructor talking and like my mind was like going crazy. I'm like, I had no idea. So many things went into making this one bottle. Like we were talking about before. Well, how does it, how did it get to taste like that or smell like that? Anyway, I just wrote like pages and pages of notes and went home and like made my husband sit down and I like read them all out loud to him and was like pacing around the apartment. And it just, it just sort of took over as, as a passion. Plus you meet the most interesting people. You really do. Yeah. Yeah. Is that how you guys met? Yeah, we we met via Wine Access. I also lived in New York and got into wine when I was in New York. What was your story? I was working at a place called The Core Club on 55th. and The Core Club? Yeah. So I was working there. I, I was doing my acting thing. And there's this sommelier that started who worked at Liberated Den, and he joined us as, as an AGM. My whole life, I loved food and my parents took us to great restaurants, but they weren't super into wine. But I I always idolized women who were just like very cultured and had like a sense of the world. Um, And I desperately wanted to be a Renaissance person. I just, you know, I wanted to experience everything and be great at so many different things. And wine was always at the center of that. And so it it was always this thing that I like, I couldn't get into do, you know, you know what it is. It's like, it's hard to get into wine unless someone takes you. So this guy was essentially willing to like take me under his wing and he'd showed me the ropes and enrolled me in classes. And I don't know, I just found that it engaged my senses in a different way. And it still was a creative outlet and it still was artistic. And it just, you know, it was going to allow me to travel and I was going to be able to eat again. I was so hungry at that point because <laughs> Lord knows you can't be an actor over 100 nope. pounds at, you know, my height. So, I mean, I, I got into wine that way and I ended up becoming a floor sommelier and, and working. We've had very different careers, but interestingly, we sort of reconnected uh, mm-hmm. via Wine Access and doing a few different projects. I think both of our backgrounds being in theater and in front of cameras have lent themselves to us coming together and yeah, yeah of course we're, we're, we work really to get yes. well together on cameras so that's good yeah um, you're, you're not uncomfortable in front of a camera and you smile that's the we're not shy. <laughs> no, so what no. was your epiphany bottle i'm like vanessa i don't have one no you don't I have one? Mm-mm. 
No, I kind of, I fell in love with the whole art of it, you know? Yeah. So there wasn't one thing. And yeah, I did not. Screaming Eagle at the Reserve with Ann Colgan and Barbara. Right? Right? Like, I mean, come I mean, on. It was like a $30 Where burger. Was my invitation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm curious because you, I mean, you seem to know a lot about wine. You're able to describe things that you like. And do you find that other athletes who are interested in wine kind of look up to you or are you their wine so guru? So they don't. So you know who the biggest influencers in sports are? They're basketball players. Basketball players who have the biggest brands, they have millions upon millions of social media followers, have all started to get into wine. They, they all have these wine clubs. Uh, Carmelo Anthony, formerly here mm-hmm. of the Knicks, LeBron. Like all these guys have started to appreciate wine and they talk about it constantly. So I think those are the biggest influencers in the space. Football players, by and large, are anonymous. Unless you know somebody specifically because they're, they've are they been a star, you don't know them very well because you don't know their faces, right? You don't see them because of their mask. And so the bigger influences have been basketball players, in a sense. My influences, though, come from just being introduced, like you were saying, or just random opportunities. So I went through a bad divorce back in 2009, 2010, um, 11 or so. And when I was courting my my second wife, Tracy, she traveled to games with me. And so she came to Denver with me for a game. It was, it was a Sunday night game. So the game ended really, really late, 11 o'clock East Coast time. Mm-hmm. But it was also late uh, on West Coast time. So we go to dinner and there's nothing open. So we're just driving around looking for a place to eat. It was like 10 o'clock because I had to stay in this, the locker room for a couple hours after the game. And we found this place called Opus just outside of Denver. And we go in and, I'm, and there's, there's literally nobody in there. It's just me and her. And I was like, hey, I rented out the whole place for you. <laughs> and, and, and so it's like, you want to get some wine? She's like, yeah, I'll, I'll have some wine. And so what's the first thing that I see on the wine list? But Opus One. <laughs> and so I, I, I ordered a bottle of Opus One and she had never had it. And she fell in love with this, with this Opus One wine mm-hmm. that we had at Opus on this kind of, it was a seminal trip for us because, you know, as I said, I was going through a divorce and here she was traveling with me. And, and it was kind of like we were in our own little bubble like trying to get away from the world. And we had this unbelievable bottle of wine, which was a turning on point for her. And it's why she started to get into it. And obviously I came with her. Interestingly, also that that night after we had that dinner, we went to see Columbine. It was morbid. It was very weird. Yeah, (laughs) I bet. It it was like 20 miles away or 15 miles, 30 miles away or something like that. And so like, you know what, let's just go. And so we went to look at the memorial. It was so somber. And so this day that was, a football game that, you know, went long and then we had dinner and then Opus One and then Columbine. It's like, it, it's it's a really emotional day. That's quite the roller coaster. But I'll never forget it because of all of that. You know what I mean? It's If it was just, yeah. you know, a game, it'd be one thing. If it was just dinner, it'd be another thing. If we had just gone to see Columbine, it'd be another thing. But it was all of it, all in one day. And it's like... A lot of light and darkness in the same day. Yeah. Have you had Opus One since? And uh, if so, does it bring you back? It does. Every time. Mm -hmm. Every time. That's It's what I can't not talk about it. We talk about that trip. Yeah. And I'd had it before, but I don't think it had felt special like that. Yeah. The other other story that, that sticks with wine, the biggest wine story for us is so when I was in Israel to run the marathon, I ran the Jerusalem Marathon Mm -hmm. about three years ago. And I had been to Israel years and years before, but I didn't realize there was a wine country, a pretty robust wine country uh, in Israel. 
And so Tracy and I are just driving with our guide who's taking us around. We're like, take us to one of the, the vintners, right? You know, the, the wineries. And so he takes us to this place called Castell. And mm-hmm. we go in. We're just like, yeah, we'll be here for half an hour, whatever. We have a couple, a couple wine tastings, whatever it may be. And so we go in. There's nobody there. And so we just kind of sit and wait. And eventually this guy comes out and he's the owner. And he, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, you guys have to wait. You know, let me, let me open a bottle of wine for you. And he pulled one out. He's like, yeah, but this was not good. And let, me, let me go get one of my good ones. And he goes down and he opens his bottle of wine. And he actually brings back like three of them, one, one of the <laughs> whites and, and two of the reds. And he just pops them all open. And we're just sitting there having this, this wine tasting with the owner of Castell. And we ended up staying there for like four hours. And then he took us down to this Palestinian restaurant. It was Mm -hmm. Palestinian food. And it was unbelievable. Now, maybe it was because we drank so much wine. (laughs) (laughs) It's another one of those moments that with wine that I'll never forget. You know, wine has a way, for whatever reason, of, of creating these memories that don't go away. And those are the three that I've told you are the ones that, that stick at the top of my mind with, with the Screaming Eagle and Bartarajo and Ann Colgan and obviously Opus out at, at Opus, the restaurant. Wow. And this one in Israel. So that's why, that's why wine is always fascinating to me. You never know what, what story is going to come from it. You just surmised our podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> sure appreciate it. <laughs> you're welcome. And you're, you're involved in a lot, of, uh, a lot of projects. Any interest in getting into wine? That would take that would take me retiring, I think, from my Oh, that's the opposite of retiring. <laughs> well, that's why retiring my day-to-day job. I'd I'd no longer do be doing radio because I mm. I, I get I get immersed when I when I get into something, I really dive into it and want because I want to learn when I'm trying to do something. Yeah. What's one thing that you wouldn't do? As far as professionally? Yeah, like you're, you've had so many different career paths. Is there like any career path that you're like, nah, I'm not into it? Um, there was a career path that I wish I would have followed, and I did. Oh, which hmm. one's that? So I'm a challenger, baby. I was, I was ah. when the challenger exploded. Okay. I don't want to ask you guys how old you are, but when that <laughs> happened, it was it, the world was obsessed with mm-hmm. space travel. Mm-hmm. Base camps start were popping up everywhere. Like everybody is in my hometown is going to space camp, but we I mean we couldn't afford to go to space camps. So my mom was like, "Well, why don't you just go be an astronaut?" I was like, "So all right." My dream became to be an astronaut. Wow, really? That's why I went to UVA. Oh, that makes so much sense. I went into the engineering school, but then I got obsessed with computers, and I diverted into the business school and was an MIS major, and so. I wanted to be an astronaut, but I knew I couldn't because I was too obsessed with computers, even though I probably could have been a NASA engineer or something. But I was at UVA in 19, I graduated in 1997, which was the beginning of the bubble, right? The, uh, the tech world. The tech bubble, yeah. But the problem was I got really good at football. And so I often yeah. wonder, like, what would have happened if I would have just been an average football player at UVA and started some tech company? You know what I mean? Yeah. And so... I, I feel like I've, I always, I, and I've had a very successful, fulfilling career in life, but I often think, man, I would, I could have been that person, you know, yeah. you have to think that way. Yeah. But I think about the opportunity that was missed as opposed to the, the successes that I have sometimes. Well, you've done so many things and I'm sure met so many interesting people, but is there anyone dead or alive mm-hmm. that if you could sit down and share a, a bottle of wine with that, that you would? Yeah. So, so given what's going on in the world right now mm-hmm. and 
I'll go back to my alma mater. I'm fascinated by Thomas Jefferson. Oh. His history is very complicated. Yeah. Um, obviously, he was the president of the United States. And before that, he was vice president. And John Adams thinks he undermined his presidency. It's what led to political parties. But he also owned slaves and mm -hmm. had a relationship with a slave. And as this social justice world that we're living in is evolving and statues, Confederate era statues are being brought down and mm -hmm. uh, this reckoning that's happening with history as it's being judged with a 2020 lens as opposed to a late 19th century lens makes you reflect on people you had an affinity for. Mm -hmm. So Thomas Jefferson did some great things. Obviously, he wrote the Declaration of Independence and you know, Statute for Religious Freedoms in Virginia and things of that nature. But I feel like he was a very conflicted person mm. for most of his life. In fact, there are stories that we tell at UVA that, you know, there's capitals, you know, there's a, like in the rotunda, it has the columns and then there's big capitals at the top. They were, they were Italian, but at the time, Italy had a ridiculously high tariff on art. And so he would box them and label them school supplies and send them to the University of Virginia, <laughs> therefore, therefore avoiding the tariff. So he did some duplicitous things, but he also started to work towards freedoms for enslaved people at the end of mm -hmm. his life. And in fact, there's an initiative that's happening down at UVA right now where they're uh, changing over some of the old buildings. One mm -hmm. is Ruffner Hall. It's now being renamed for a Black scholar that went to UVA, Walter Ridley uh, Hall. The serpentine walls, which are marvels of architecture because they stand on one brick. It's basically being able to have a piece of paper stand on its side. The way you do it is you fold it right? Mm -hmm. So they can stand on its edge. But back in the 18th, 19th century, they were eight feet tall. And the reason they were that tall was so they could hide the slaves on the other side. Mm. And so people are now viewing what in my era, which not, wasn't that long ago, this marvel of architecture as this, I don't know, testament to this era where Blacks were oppressed. And so like the understanding of history relative to today is really mm -hmm. interesting to me. So if I could bring Thomas Jefferson to life now and sit and have a glass of wine, which I'm sure he had plenty of in his day, um, would be amazing. I mean, there's also the, the Barbary pirates and everything else that he did, yeah. ambassador to France. And I mean, he had an unbelievable life, but it's complicated. So it's mm -hmm. a very interesting answer. Yeah. He also, he was a man who knew his wine yeah. and, and uh, allegedly was the one who kind of came up with the original first growth list. And he planted vines. So. Yep. Jefferson was a, a, a very interesting, that's an interesting it's choice. Great, yeah. it's, it's something I wouldn't have thought of. Nor I, but. I like that answer quite yeah. a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Are you nice and drunk now? Do we, do we do our jobs? I am feeling warm. I don't know Good. if the air conditioning is off. Or <laughs> <laughs> or because I've drank both these glasses of wine. Yeah. Do you have a preference between the two? I like the Costa. Mm-hmm. It's drinking really pretty right now. I need to actually go back to that one. Now yeah. that it's been the glass well. Oh. Yeah, the Garnacha is is definitely has a little funk on it. It's um herbaceous. What would you pair it with? The Garnacha? Yeah. I'd actually pair this with a lot of things similar things to, to Pinot Noir. Because I think it has a similar, it doesn't have quite the acidity of Pinot, but it has a similar tannin profile. So, you know, I think you could do, I mean, you know, you're talking about trying to be healthy. Like I think lighter fare, vegetables, mushrooms would be great with this. I have like a little chicken with pesto. I was thinking, yeah. Something that's, you know, got some herbs and a little bit of nuttiness to it. Yeah. And some oil to kind of 
I like because it's it's got some acid on it. Seared too. salmon, yeah. I think, mm-hmm. would be great. Mm-hmm. So I think, yeah, sort of similar, and and that's that's I think why we chose it, you know, because we were trying to think lighter, mm-hmm. sort of lighter wines, and and again, wines from Monsant from this region in Spain can be much more robust, yeah. but this particular one I think is is more kind of pretty and floral. You said, oh, so Spain. This was yes, it's from Tarragona, so it's like right around the region of Priorat, if you've heard of that. And the key with pairing dessert is you want your sweet to match your sweet. See, I didn't know that. The more you know, you didn't know you were going to get a wine education on this podcast. <laughs> well, that, that was the point. That's why I wanted to do it. Good. I yes. feel like I've learned a lot too today. Me too. Yes. Me too. This has been fascinating. This time has really flown by. I know. I didn't know that we were going to have such a deep conversation on Broadway, but I was very into <laughs> Me it. Me too. Me too. You're talking to the... <laughs> I would not have expected a Tiki Barber podcast to be like really Broadway focused. We, we but... tricked you into doing a theater podcast. <laughs> yeah. I got to tell you, football was amazing. It really was. But it feels like forever ago. I've been out of the game for 15 years, almost maybe 15, 14 years now. It feels like forever ago. But Broadway, even though, you know, it was it wasn't that long ago, feels like it was yesterday. That's what is so fun about this. I know it brings brings people together. We know what we're going to talk about, but it always ends up being not really. (laughs) (laughs) Wine makes you talk about many different things. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much. Well, that was fun, Vanessa. I am so surprised that that conversation dove as deep as it did into Broadway territory. (laughs) I was too. I mean, I knew that he was on Broadway, but I had no idea how passionate he was about that and um, how fondly he remembers his time there. I mean, I feel like we could have done a whole podcast about theater. 100%. I did not expect him to be as passionate as he was, but it was a refreshing take on Broadway and refreshing to hear from him. So let's get into our last drops. What were our takes on the wines? What were our takes on Tiki? What did we learn today? Well, he was so fun to talk to, so easy to talk to. And um, I I really liked that we tried sort of a classic, you know, the Costa Brown, and then we kind of threw him a curveball um, from Spain, and he was really open to both. So I just loved his willingness to try new things and talk about it. Yeah, I was really excited that he enjoyed the Spanish wine. I loved that he had never had the Costa Brown before. Whenever I can introduce someone to an iconic wine like that, it is just such a pleasure and such a treat. So too, I hope that he continues to have memories of drinking that wine that he enjoyed so much uh, on this podcast with us. I hope I hope that stays with him. Well, and the fun thing is we get to drink along with our guests. So (laughs) that was fun for me, too. (laughs) Yes. And I hope that he gets to finish that wine cellar because, you know, a wine cellar really is such a key thing, I think, for a a wine wine collector to have. And even if it's not a wine cellar, I just think a wine fridge in general, having a place to store your wine is just such a great way to get started. And like I said, it's it's sort of like a shoe closet. Like if you have it, you're probably going to fill it, right? You're going to fill it and you're never going back. (laughs) Well, for the people who would love to enjoy the Finca Largada Monsant from Spain and or the Costa Brown and other wines that Wine Access featured, where can they go to get those? You can go to wineaccess.com. You can shop on the website there. You can sign up by giving us your email if you'd like to receive daily offers 
uh, via email. Um, and we also have a wine club. Absolutely. And there's lots of other wines too. So things move very quickly on Wine Access. People get excited about wines and they do tend to sell out. So I highly recommend getting on that mailing list and being the first to know about those wines, following us on Instagram and doing all those things that let you know what Wine Access is up to because you guys are up to an awful lot. We are staying busy, that's for sure. If you like what you heard today, give us a review and subscribe to the podcast. It means a lot. Well, always a pleasure, Vanessa. And uh, I will not forget this Tiki Barber podcast. And I look forward to getting back to Broadway and thinking of him when those lights go on. Me too. Can't wait. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.